Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news and social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and we get the pleasure or have the pleasure each week of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And no disappointments this week because <laughs> a friend is back, uh, Cecilia Nadal from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, who was uh, on the show with uh, Tammy Bruckeroff, I think, from uh, Herman, Missouri, about four or five months ago. So welcome back, Cecilia. It's great to be back, Dick. I knew as soon as we talked that you needed a whole hour. <laughs> <laughs> or I needed a whole hour to to just uh, celebrate with you uh, what an, um, a wonderful journey it's been in building a more humane world. Some say that you're retired, Cecilia. I, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm beginning to question that myself, Dick. <laughs> but I am. I truly am retired, just still busy. Uh, I did get to watch your retirement party. Wow. <laughs> Good, good. What a, a a bunch of folks to come out to say thank you and uh, celebrate that. That was beautiful. I was very humbled by that, yes. Well, Gypsy, uh, Gypsy, <laughs> I'm going to introduce you as a Gypsy. You would be right. <laughs> spiritually, I'm a Gypsy. <laughs> yeah, a spiritual, spiritual Gypsy. Well, that uh, you know, go ahead and explain that. I'd be happy to. My training is in sociology. So it's fair to say that I'm a sociologist first, who then decided to use sociology as a vehicle for change. And one of the, the groups that I have always been interested in were the Roma, or gypsies as they're uh, normally called. Mm -hmm. And I've studied gypsies for about 20 years. And many people in St. Louis sort of think I'm the closest to an expert on gypsies. And it was because I admired them. I admired the way in which they kept to their values even when they went into new territories. I admired the fact that they are considered by most people to be the most natively talented artists in the world. And then when I began to discover who were some of the Roma, it blew me away. Uh, just to give you an example, many of us are familiar with the um, jazz guitar playing of Django Reinhardt. And Django is gypsy. Some of us love the demur and acting of George Pappard. And George Pappard is gypsy. And who can forget Yul Brynner in The King and I, who is also Roma. And of course, the gracious dancing of the redheaded Rita Hayward is, is another person that people don't know about who is also part gypsy. And then if you're looking for the charitable end of gypsies, Mother Teresa was an Albanian gypsy. So gypsies have been in our lives, many of whom we've not met and known. And of course, what stood out for me is how much the Roma have been victimized in Europe and how much prejudice there is for this group. So there were two things kind of operating together with gypsies. 
on one hand, this native talent, this incredible love of family, but then to be in many cases misunderstood and the diversity of gypsies not known by many. So that informed in some ways the name of the organization that I started, Hitana Productions. Hitana means gypsy in Spanish. And what I wanted to do as an objective was to bring to light the talent of the world and to do that with people who have not heard or seen that talent. And I also wanted to make sure that when it was brought, it was brought not just to those of us who are privileged, but it's also brought to those that are not privileged so that they would know the world as well. And so the, the spirit of the gypsy has operated in my life for a very long time. Beautiful. Where would we become better informed about the history? Well, I would heavily suggest that for those who have a serious interest in understanding the history and the culture of gypsies, that they start with books by Ian Hancock. Dr. Ian Hancock is at the University of Texas, Austin, and he is, by the way, an English gypsy who was once the representative of, the, of, of all gypsies at the United Nations. And he has uh, done, I believe, uh, the best research on his people uh, without bias. So that's one place to start. The wonderful website that is run by uh, gypsy organizations in Europe. And that website uh, would be Patrin is the name, P-A-T-R-I-N. Uh, that's another place to go. I've not visited that website recently, but they try to keep it up to date to let people know who is who has contributed to cultures across the world from their group. So let's follow your gypsy road just a little bit. You told me that you are actually part Puerto Rican yes. as well as African-American. That, that's correct. And we could break that down even more. I was, like many people, decided to have my DNA done. And I'm 24% Irish. <laughs> the rest of that is African and, and Iberian. The Iberian part is about 5-6%. That's because it, it tracked my mother's line rather than my father, who is Puerto Rican. And then the African side has a significant amount of presentation from Mali, of all places. Oh. And uh, I found that really fascinating. So my dad is Puerto Rican, and if you follow his trajectory, you know, he's Spanish as well as African. My mother, who's African-American, has Irish blood, Cherokee, and it turns out she even had some Iberian blood, which means that, that probably she was the group of African slaves who came with the Spanish before the English came to the United States. So I'm a mutt, <laughs> to put it plainly. Or a nicer way to put it is I'm a child of the world. Yes. Uh, let me ask, isn't Mali where Timbuktu is located in Western yes. Africa? Yes, that's correct. And it's also Mali that if there's a great book, and I forget the author, but it's called They Came Before Columbus. Who told and you about that book? Was that you? I told you about that book. Yes, and I took it, read it, and loved it, Dick. It was fascinating. Wonderful. And it, it turns out that it was from the hierarchy of Mali, 
that was seafaring. And he makes an, an extraordinary case for the fact that they came to the Americas and particularly to Mexico. And it just so happens that I have a knowledge of the other end of that. In Mexico, in a place called Veracruz, you have very dark Mexicans. And these Mexicans were the ones who contributed to the, the song La Bamba. And oh. it so happens that Bamba is not a Spanish word, it is an African word. And so the derivation of that word used colloquially by, by many Mexicans is actually not Spanish, but African. And of course, there are the statues, the Olmec statues, that are uh, statues of Africans, without a doubt, that were there before the Aztecs. So, you know, we're learning more about what influences this world, and we're getting a lot of surprises, but I'm not entirely surprised when you start to look at the connections and the evidence of the presence of these people. So it may be that I have an influence from those seafaring Malians who came over, and you connected me to that. Thank you for that. I really do. A history teacher at Lincoln University had suggested I read They Came Before Columbus, huh. and I just devoured it. It was. Oh, yeah. Well you, well, you made me devour it too, and I love it. And I love quoting what he says, because I've always felt that there was an absence of the seafaring nature of African people. Mm -hmm. And even in India, you know, they, they claim that there was a lot of interchange between Africa and India, which accounts for the dark complexion of many Indians in the Southern region, Sri Lanka and places like that. And they acknowledge that, but, but unfortunately in the Western hemisphere, we don't. So I love breaking up those stereotypes about where people were and where they came from because we're much more connected than we think. Amen to that. You mentioned a teacher down in uh, Texas that had written something. Yes, Dr. Ian Hancock. And you also were in Texas doing something at one time, weren't you? <laughs> I actually decided to take a kind of Chautauqua from uh, St. Louis in Missouri and go to for a job in Texas, in Dallas, at uh, Dallas Community College. And my responsibility was to really try to engage African-Americans in the rural areas of Texas to get into college, but also to do that with Latinos who were there. And because I speak Spanish fairly fluently, I was able to address both those groups and really get them to take on higher education. So yes, that was, a, that was a very interesting journey for me. I encountered rural culture for the first time based on living there, and it was a challenge. Um, but you see the connection. All of my work is pulling people together who normally don't come together in order to lift up both, to take us to higher global places, higher universal places hopefully to improve this world. So then you got drawn back to St. Louis by one of your dear friends. Yes. <laughs> you applied for a job. That's right. Cheryl Solomon, who was then at Monsanto, she handled the Monsanto Fund at the time uh, and also did the United Way campaigns. They needed an executive director for an alternative school that catered to kids 
that had behavioral problems, who did not do well in the regular public school system, giving them a kind of second chance to not only get the academics, but also get the social skills that would help them to be productive. And I was challenged by that. I liked the idea of working with kids that were not doing well and giving them that second chance. So I couldn't say no to that. Not only could I not say no to the mission, but when I came, there were about 12 people around the table interviewing me, all of whom were corporate entities. And I was amazed by their sincere investment in wanting to see success with this program. And that, that was the clincher for me, because I knew we had a board that would support doing whatever it took to create a, a school that made a difference for, for those kids. I was an assistant professor in human services and also criminal justice. And at the time, I was very interested in building capacity for people who came from, from underprivileged backgrounds. And the area that seemed to be most important in making a difference was job placement and employment. People needed jobs and they needed jobs that gave them a living and gave them hope. And my idea in starting Productive Futures was that this, we could not get a marketable change in the way things were going if we did not provide training both to those seeking jobs as well as to those within those corporations who didn't know anything about disadvantaged people. So I developed a kind of dual-edged training program where we went in and dealt with frontline managers, helping them to understand, to put it in simple terms, poor people. Yeah. And then also to help those people who wanted to do better in their lives to understand what they would experience and what would be expected and how they could navigate and be empowered in those environments. So that worked. It was not always easy to get inside a corporation, work with mid-level managers, but with those that we did it with, they had such success that after a certain period of time, we had, we had a lot of companies calling us <laughs> and asking us to come in and diagnose the problem and do the matchmaking uh, that would make it successful. How do you move on from that? I mean, that seems so- <laughs> It was hard. I was there for 23 years. Oh. So it wasn't easy to move from it. But during those 23 years, I started 10 years before I retired from there, I started Hitana as president of the board of directors. And that came about because I observed in the arts within St. Louis that people, the arts were as segregated as the community was segregated. Mm. So you had people coming certain people coming to country western, certain people coming to, to classical music, certain people coming to jazz and to blues. Sometimes there was a mixture with blues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there was a mixture with jazz. But you had many who wouldn't try anything other than what they liked. Mm -hmm. And that was with music, but that was also true with theater. People were not coming to see plays that were very significant from certain parts of the community because they were not frankly, invited, and invited in a way in which there was credibility. So again, matchmaking and bringing people together. I, I met a guy named Danny Clark, who happened to have been a ballet dancer with the Alvin Ailey Dance Troupe in New York. 
He came back to St. Louis to caretake his parents. I met him, he and I talked. He said, Cecilia, you're an amazing lover of the arts. Let's do something together. He had traveled all over the world with the Alvinelli group, and he really had the same goal that I had, and that is to use music, drama, and dance as a vehicle to bring diverse cultures together. So that's what started Hitana. Yeah. And it worked. It did. 22 years, 23 years there too. I heard that you produced Faces of Love. Was that part of this uh, new Gitana? Yes, it was. It was the very first show that we did. Rather remarkable. Uh, we had Spanish dancers who did flamenco. We had Indian dancers who did classical Indian dance. We had jazz and blues artists. And then we brought in Ruby Dee and Asi Davis to clinch it. So this was a multifaceted, multimedium program that included dance, music, and dramatic presentation. And did it draw the crowd of diverse people that you wanted? It, it did. It was packed. The very first, in fact, we were at Westport Playhouse, mm -hmm. and which has the revolving uh, stage. And the capacity was 1,000, and we had about 1,006. We had a few people standing in the aisle. It was very successful. But why was it successful? Because our marketing went after showing that we were bringing a global presentation, and people were very curious about what, you know, what's the Indian dancer going to do with a Ruby D and Aussie Davis? <laughs> you know, what is a flamenco dancer going to do with with a former dancer with the Bolshoi Ballet. And so our marketing went after universality. It went after getting to people who would love to see this. So we were quite smart, I think, about going after targets that would be natural allies for something like this. So we, we went to the universalist churches. We went to yoga masters, we went to people involved in meditation, we went to university professors who handled international music. We understood what we needed to do, you know, to get that 1,000 people there. And so our marketing was, was wise, it was well-informed, and we did it one-on-one. -on -one. You know, we made calls, we met with people, and sometimes the marketing was six months in advance of the event. Yeah. So when you have such a wonderful show like that, does that get videotaped? Is there an archive of these wonderful pieces? Well, we do have an archive of many of our shows. And there is a piece that we do have for that very first show, but it's very limited. At that point, I, I have to tell you, we were so invested in making it happen that we were not as wise as to video the entire show, but we did have pieces that were done. So yes, we do have an archive, a limited one that, that features that. Cool. Well, as you, I don't know if you know, uh, I've been in the community acting scene in Jefferson City for about 20 years. And some of that was over at where I taught at Lincoln University that has a very nice little theater. And I experienced that uh, situation of wonderful productions at Lincoln that were poorly attended or certainly maybe only attended by Lincoln students and faculty and the community didn't quite get in on the, uh, the good stuff that was going on. Yes, and, I understand that. Cool. And, and, and I can tell you this, uh, Dick, 
this is where we understand that not only is it helpful to have a team of eclectic and a multicultural staff, but it's also important to understand that you've got to work hard to get those people to come and you've got to be invested. The only reason I think we were able to pull this off is because I had been in business for 23 years and I understood as a business person what the importance of target marketing was. And so I brought to the table with our team a certain skill set about marketing that was a little bit different than your typical theater or your typical university. And that's not necessarily their fault because they have limited funds and, and they're really trying to train the students more than anything else. And who has time to go out there and beat on doors to bring in a lot of eclectic people? But unfortunately, to be satisfied with that is to also be satisfied with long-term average performance. A Lincoln could benefit by making such a a commitment to target marketing. And in the long-term, it would increase those who support them. It would increase the amount of money that they get. There is a residual that comes from that hard work that in the long-term would be very beneficial to many universities and, and arts organizations. Wonderful. I clearly understand the absence of what you described uh, there at the school. And without having the vision and believing in yourselves and what can be done, uh, which it's got to start with somebody that's got the vision like you, it's hard for it to happen at all. Yeah. We, we, we've got to be open, open the door to people we don't know and trust. Mm-hmm. That, that is the biggest problem. I don't think that it is possible to be truly successful in the arts or in anything unless you're willing to open the door to people you don't know looking for a different worldview that Mm -hmm. could help you get to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. And so in academia, in business, the folks who who are territorial, the folks who want to just deal with the people they know are frankly... Uh, subscribing to long-term mediocrity because they're not willing to let other people in to, to help with their views. Uh, as, a, as a president of the board of directors, I did everything to ensure that we had a very eclectic board, not just in terms of culture, but also in terms of skill and ability. And sometimes some of the people on the board frankly, might have had the attitudes of jerks, but they, had, but they had incredible capability to tell you how to get it financially viable. And I wanted to listen to those people, even though uh, their personalities were, were not always, in some cases, um, <laughs> as, as palatable as some of the others. So we've got, to, we've, we've got to not be territorial. We've got to open up to other people. Mm. Why would someone adopt you as their grandma? <laughs> wow, what a question, Dick. I love it. I love it. Well, I don't have grandchildren uh, by blood, but I do have a lot of children out there that have come through programs that I've had. So I can actually answer that. One, like many grandmothers, I'm wise. And I have had a lot of life's experiences that can be drawn on to, to shorten the, the bumps that, that my grandchildren would have. I'm 
non-judgmental, which means that I don't, you don't come in the room and because I don't like the way you dress or what you've decided to do in life or be in life or what gender you've chosen. I do not judge people. Um, and so I listen without judgment, which I've had to master over many years. I really care. And so when someone talks to me or comes to me for advice, I feel that I'll give them the best of what I've got. And if I don't have it, I'll, I'll find out where they need to go so they can get what they need. So, so I think those would be the primary reasons. I look out for helping others to be as wise as myself and more. And if I can give them the, um, the mapping for that, uh, then I'm going to do that. Wonderful. Was it part of Gitana when you were driving around picking up random kids? <laughs> <laughs> You've done your homework, I tell you. There was a place, um, actually not far from where I live, where there are 150 refugee families living right along with African-American families, all of whom were struggling and trying to make it. Lots of crime around the area, and, but lots of hope as well. And so I wanted to get um, a cross-section of both refugees and African-American kids to get involved in the arts. And so I started a program called Global Education Through the Arts. And they did not have people who could bring them. Their parents were working if they were lucky. If they weren't working, they had to be at home taking care of a lot of kids. So I got in my car and my same 19, uh, or not 19, 2007 uh, Toyota Avalon. And I said, I will pick you up and take you to classes and bring you back home. And that's what I did. I filled my, um, my car up and eventually got some help from, from local people in the community. And we started transporting those kids to the library where our program was based. And that was called Global... Education Through the Arts. Ah, Global Education Through the Arts. Yeah, in fact, um, this program was a first in the state of Missouri. Uh, there mm. had not been an arts program that intentionally brought poor African-American kids together with refugees. And it was real clear to me that it would be better to help these kids to, to introduce them to each other and their culture way before they had a chance to develop stereotypes about each other. Mm -hmm. And there were conflicts that were going on because of a lack of understanding. So our kids who came through the program, we served almost a thousand over the years that we were in business. These are kids who are open. They're kids that understand what a stereotype is. These are kids that understand that it's important to help each other and be world-class workers. So yes, we're, we, are very proud of that program. And some of my grandchildren that you spoke of ha have, have now um, co really come into the fold. They continue to call me after they go to college, after they graduate. I have one student who is now, I'm very proud of, Sunita Manu, who came from Liberia. And um, I was with her from the point that she was at Roosevelt High School and got her through college, much of through her own efforts, but she's now working on a PhD in public health, and we're still in contact with each other. Wonderful, wonderful.
Very rewarding, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> when I'm laying on my bed and can't move, I will have many, many faces yeah. that keep my mind going with joy. And I, I am very thankful for that. You know, our radio show broadcasts from KOPN in Columbia, Missouri, which is also the home of Stevens College. Yes, that's right. And for some reason, you were invited over to <laughs> Stevens College. You blow me away, Dick. I tell you, I love it. I you're the kind of guy I'd like on a board, let me tell you, because you, <laughs> you get the resources. Yes, it, I was delighted and surprised, quite frankly, to be invited by um, the, well, it's called the Missouri Association of, of, of Dance Education. I believe I've got that right. And I was asked to come to their statewide uh, conference and speak on cross-cultural engagement and the importance of it. And I could not have asked for a better audience. Those dancers got it. They understood the importance of working with different kinds of people to take dance, not only to classrooms, but to take it to older people, to take it to disabled people, to, to engage um, in, in getting uh, a cross-section of people on their boards um, to, to make dance more than an inside classroom presentation and get it outside as well. So yes, that was, that was a very rewarding and surprising gig, so to speak. <laughs> I loved it, and I loved those dancers too. Well, we really got together for the first time because of another project that you uh, took on. And it involved, uh, eventually involved Herman, Missouri. So why don't we spend a little time talking about this, uh, well, it ended up being a symposium over mm -hmm. at Herman that my wife and I got to attend, uh, where that was a packed house. And it involved uh, a bunch of, well, it involved a play that you wrote. Yes. So I, I think it's going to be good to kind of take some gentle time here to talk about this whole interest that you began to have in the German involvement in abolition in Missouri. Yes, yes. Well, the story has been told many times, but I, I was visiting uh, a professor at St. Louis University who was involved in global education. And we were talking about an intern. I, I was there to kind of do an evaluation of an intern who came from SLU that worked with me. And he had a book on his desk that he wanted me to take home with me. He said, Cecilia, I want you to look at this uh, because I think it's something that you could do something with. The name of the book was German Immigrant Abolitionist at uh, Creating a Free Missouri. And I took it and I really didn't put, pay much attention to the book for almost a year. And one Sunday, it, it was lying on my desk, so in my desk, a pile of things to do and things to read. And I took it and I read it. And I went from the first page to the last and was astounded by learning that Germans in Missouri took a key role in abolishing slavery. I was very moved by what I read. And mind you, this was done uh, as a history piece. 
quickly, because I'm always looking for ways to bring people together who don't come together naturally. And I knew that the two largest ethnic groups in St. Louis were Germans and African-Americans. Hmm. And I scratched my head and I thought, God, those, these are the two biggest groups. We're always looking at how to talk to each other. Why not start with this story? This story is an incredible foundation for the intersection of our experiences with each other. So I began doing a lot of research beyond that book and wound up writing the play, An Amazing Story, German Abolitionist of Missouri. Uh, I will tell you that I stuck pretty close to the history. Uh, I had to use some playwrights um, privilege in, in creating aspects of relationships, but much of what is in the play comes from uh, the reality on the outside. And uh, it, it was just amazing to me. I had never, I've done a lot of study of immigrants and refugees, and I had never heard of a group of refugees and immigrants coming to the United States who did not speak English, who immediately started taking on the role of, of abolition for a group they didn't even know. They had no knowledge of and had no relationship with. Uh, to this day, I continue to look for who those immigrants are who came without speaking the language who started fighting against this right away. And it can only be said that it was particularly this cluster of Germans who came to Missouri during the 1848 revolution who, who were the, the ones who had foresight. They understood that they could not come to a country for democracy and support slavery, and they fought against it immediately. They were quite unique in the, in the landscape of Germans that came, but they had tremendous power because they were the primary people who wrote the German newspapers in German, and they were able to convince most Germans, generally it's been 90% who supported the union and became anti-slavery. So I used that to create the play and it's traveled both in St. Louis as well as Washington and Herman, as you know. And it led then to trying to bring that story in a more balanced way by having speakers who could address different angles Mm -hmm. of what it meant to be German and ultimately to support um, the abolition of slavery. So that's why the symposium took place because now we had the chance to get people like Dr. Gary Kramer and Sidney Norton and John Wright and myself to speak on it. Yes, and it was a very informative. You had some of your actors there doing incredible uh, pieces from the play. I, I truly <laughs> appreciate the work there that you did. That's what I've been able to physically see and experience. Uh, I've only heard about you know, the other wonders of your world, <laughs> uh, second and third hand. You have a, a perspective on what's happening today in our country and world as far as difficulties that people are experiencing. How well, are you handling this uh, <laughs> pandemic? Well, there's, a, there's the personal side, the spiritual side, and then the dedication side. So let me go to each of those. Uh, I have to say that being confined 
is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to deal with in my life. I have always had access, and if I didn't, I found access. And I could decide it. Maybe it's the gypsy spirit in me that, that makes me want to get out and be with the people. But the good news is, believe it or not, I've discovered more about the incredible quality of my neighborhood and the people who live here um, because we have come together to support each other and we're doing things that are fun and creative. And I would not have known that had I not sat still for a while to learn about them. I have friends in my neighborhood, make no mistake about it, but I discovered the the large the the, the largesse of of what they're able to accomplish in times that are tough and mm -hmm. that's been wonderful i meet with a group of women in a yard uh every day at four o'clock for one hour and mm -hmm. we're socially distant some of us have masks some of us don't and we just talk mostly we have a lot to say about what's not going on and what should be going on but by the time we're done you know, we've had that, that community connection. Uh, there's a few of our neighbors who started putting pink flamingos on the front of their yards. Mm -hmm. And now 90% of our yards have these pink flamingos and people come through and say, what's going on in this block? And it was all about levity and, and unity. And, and we mm -hmm. wanted people to ask what's going on about this neighborhood. Oh. Um, and we've got signs up that, that edify the hard work of, of people in the healthcare industry. So one part of it is that I, I have accepted that being still for a while, instead of constantly moving, has allowed me to explore more of the people around me, uh, immediately around me. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part is, I'll be damned if I'm going to allow this confinement to stop me from, from believing in the work and what it does to bring people together. So I have uh, followed what I'm to do and did some work with some of the same people in the area where my kids came from, where the refugees live, and we organized uh, a group of Latina women who are sores and a friend of mine who lives on my street who has lots and lots of fabric donated the fabric and these latina women made 150 masks for people in that area mm -hmm. and it was just a matter of making connections mm -hmm. um so i've done that i'm now involved in doing more writing and uh that serves me well in, in terms of being uh, where we are but but with regard to what i want to say about why we are where we are. I must say that one of the big challenges of our time right now is education, Dick, and it is history. I'm flabbergasted by the lack of knowledge that so many have about our history at the basic level. Education is a problem, and there have been many um, social scientists, historians, and others who have said that our democracy does depend on quality education. And if you don't believe that, if you look at what's going on now, it makes it clear. Uh, we have people who are getting out in the streets and saying, don't pay attention to um, 
to the, um, uh, the academics and the doctors who tell you you need to stay at home. And they're saying, no, it is important for us to get out even if we die. I heard someone say the other day, and it, and it, it hurt my heart, um, there's been much discussion about the, um, the um, how can I say, the disproportionate numbers of people dying who are people of color. Yes. And one of the members of the protest group that asked, to, that said basically, let us out, we want to be out, made this comment. He said, we don't have this problem with Im being immune. We are immune. It's other people who have immune problems that are dying. And I thought to myself, you, don't you look at the information that's there. The vast majority of people who are dying are still white American. That's the largest group. The disproportionate effect on black people is real and there are more of us dying proportionately than whites but still the majority are white now that that reality one could read and understand but there are people who don't read anymore people who don't research anymore they allow people to tell them what the reality is and they accept it without question mm -hmm. and that in my own mind's eye is the biggest problem that we have in this country right now is that we no longer have critical thinkers, people who do the research themselves and, and then make a choice. We have people who follow in blindness. And that is the biggest challenge to our country right now. And, and I'm very sad about that. I can only say that I'm glad that with the kids that I have encountered both in universities and in arts programs that we took the time to teach critical thinking and to look at different sources for information. I hope that the lesson that is taught post COVID-19 is a lesson that deals with how we educate our people to be good thinkers and to research the information. So I think that's the biggest thing that bothers me the most now is that our educational system is, um, it has been damaged in some ways. The idea of, of studying to pass tests versus studying to think better, to research better, is sad. Well, having been an educator for 30 years, I uh, understand exactly where you're coming from. And uh, trying to make a classroom that was actually built completely on critical thinking <laughs> by introducing uh, cross-cultural kinds of uh, ideas and, and uh, sources and, and conversations. Our school was already one of the most diverse populations in the state, if not beyond. Uh, so it, it really was easy to do. It just took my vision of this is, this is the way we're going <laughs> to do school. And, and I think it worked. Feedback was good on that. So I, I do want to address something you asked me because I also see a great deal of hope right now that comes from this condition that we're in. We're listening more. We're sitting still and thinking about what's important. We're showing compassion more than we ever have. Some of us forced to show compassion 
because that's the only thing we can do standing still and that's okay. Whatever it takes, uh, that's fine. Uh, we have an incredible opportunity with this oneness of condition to really come together in a way that we never have before. I would, I would venture that many of those that find themselves unemployed for the first time and, and not knowing where their next paycheck will come from will now understand what it means for some people who have never had a chance to be employed what life is like when they struggle. We need to talk about with each other about that. There's actually a lot that could be gained by those who come to this new reality, talking to those that have had it as an old reality and sharing with each other how to get through this. And so I see an invaluable opportunity for cross-cultural engagement now, but it can't just be a hitana or a productive futures, it, all of us have to go for this. We, we all have to remember what we're learning and carry it through um, once we get to some, uh, some modicum of normality. Let's not let this time that we're being still be for naught. Let's learn the lessons of love and compassion and fellow feeling and being active in our expression of gratitude to other people. Um, I, I just hope we carry this as a banner once we come through this. Wonderful. In this time, I have also been introduced, well, he, he was actually a, a guest on my radio show back in March. His name is uh, Dr. Clint Rogers, uh, PhD doctor. And he was telling us about uh, his teacher, and mentor of 10 years, a, an Indian healer named Dr. Naram, N-A-R-A-M. Well, just after our radio show, Dr. Clint started a Zoom group or a Facebook group that started doing once a week Zoom calls. Well, that grew and uh, now every Sunday morning, I'm on a Zoom call and there are 1,200 people in the group from wow. all across the world. Huh. <laughs> it's uh, from, he's in Mumbai, India. There are people from uh, Romania and Italy and Spain and, and Puerto Rico and, and all, all across the world. Amazing. And actually, they have little breakout sessions then where you get to actually talk more intimately with uh, just three or four people. But it's all based on global healing, and it's uh, using uh, the approach uh, called Ancient Secrets of a Master Healer. That's a book that tells the story of this Dr. Naram and the, many of the practices and, and uh, healings that took place. So I've had a whole cross-cultural engagement <laughs> that I never expected, and it grew out of, of a radio conversation that, huh. yeah. that I had, yeah. just like our conversation today. It was, uh, hmm. it, it's been very educational to me. It's, it's spiritually feeding. I hope our audience uh, understands that there's 
lots of things. You mentioned it's an opportunity. There, there's such an opportunity to be able to reach out and uh, touch the other, those that uh, we haven't known before. Yes. Yeah. And I think you know so well, which is why your program is so important for all of us, is that when we stretch to reach out to others that are different than we are, it edifies us, it energizes us, it gives us that extra oomph that we need to be what some call light bearers. And I think uh, taking on that role requires enough humility to know what you need to do to connect to others that give that to you. Light begets light. Mm -hmm. And if you are an ambassador for that, which you are, Dick, <laughs> without a doubt, then it comes back to you as well. And then you get the help that you need to get the work done. I have no doubt that I could not and achieve anything that I've done, nor you and what you have done, without support of the universe. You know, whether you call it God or universe or energy, it doesn't matter. We have help with this work and we have to be active in bringing people together so that that help is multiplied. And that's why the, the Zoom thing that you're doing is, is remarkable because that's, that's, that's a, a scale that I've never known uh, in terms of my organizing. But I just hope that we connect to others in order to bring more light to this world with each other, but also to be energized ourselves, ourselves. Because the battle is going to be a tough one. It's not going to be easy. And it's going to take uh, enthusiasm. My dad once told me that enthusiasm is a vehicle for God's spirit. And I believe that wholeheartedly. When we put energy into doing this work, we get the help we need. Whatever you call the source doesn't matter because it's going to happen one way or the other. Did, did he tell you where the word enthusiasm came from? No, but I'd be happy to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, not surprising, it is in theos. Huh. In Greek, it means God in you. Wow, that's amazing. So and he was telling you that, yes, when you have enthusiasm, God is there with you. Well, <laughs> that's exactly what the word means. That's amazing. That's a, thank you for that. What a gift that is. <laughs> well, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, amazing. Beautiful. So we have about uh, two minutes remaining. Um, I think we've, we've covered lots of bases. Uh, I just so appreciate you and your spirit and your, uh, your work and how it continues. So you, you said you're doing some writing. Yes. What's on your heart with writing? today well i i will tell you this this issue of education is on my heart very heavily and so i'm trying to frame commentary on that and the way it takes shape i'm not sure it could be you know kind of a it might be include letters to the editor it might include articles and things like readers digest or Essence Magazine. I, right now, I'm just putting my thoughts together on this issue of education and how it, it takes on both an academic 
kind of education as well as a social education that we need to be involved with. So I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to hit 7-0 and on the celebration of my 70, 70th day anniversary, I would like to frame what I think the elements are to, to being an activist, a spiritual activist in this time. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that's where I'm going. Well, I would like to be on your team. I feel like I am on your team, but if there's any way we can work together more, uh, it would be uh, my indeed pleasure. So. Well, you've got it. I, I, I'm going to be on that Zoom group you're involved with. <laughs> all right, all right. I mean that. You have to send me send me the information on that. Yeah. I can do that. I can do great, that. Great, great. Well, well thank, thank you. you for doing what you do. You, I, you know, when I first saw the title of your program, I couldn't figure out exactly what you were doing. And then after I put it under a microscope, I thought, oh, my God, this is a place that I need to be. I need to talk from. So thank you for bringing light to your community and beyond. Well, been a pleasure. And uh, we hope we have many more uh, opportunities. So I'm going to say thank you, Cecilia Nadal, over in St. Louis. And to uh, the listeners, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. I heard my old professor say in health class just the other day You don't really know how old you are now, do ya? The atoms of dust, water and air were forged in stars before earth was there When the sons and daughters of God sang hallelujah Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. A day with the Lord is a billion years. Conditions were right to make protein for gears. A double helix now turns it all into ya. Inside us, we have parts of all. The last descendants to hear the call. With minds and hearts to seek the Alleluia. Alleluia. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And as we reach back to the stars, our air is filled with filth from cars and Everywhere you turn, they suck it to ya. However, there are those who care for our 
our food, our water and air, and give their lives to heal the Alleluia. 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 present that's free to all. Take time to heed the inner call of the guides who over the years have been speaking to ya. With words of harmony, peace and love, with images of a descending dove, with interdependence in all the alleluia. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And now we join our hearts and pray, each person in their special way to live the dream the gods are bringing to ya. And with every breath and look you give, be grateful for the life you live, and share your love with all the Alleluia. Alleluia. 